Hello, I'm Amanda Moore. I'm the director of the Clearinghouse Community. Welcome to the Advocacy Exchange for August 2018. The Advocacy Exchange is our monthly conversation with advocates advancing change. Both the Advocacy Exchange and the Clearinghouse Community are brought to you by the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, a national leader in advancing justice and opportunity. Today I'm joined by two guests, Kevin DeLibon and Soren Rasmussen. Kevin is the Economic Justice Practice Group Leader at Legal Aid of Arkansas, and he joins us today from West Memphis, Arkansas. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Amanda. Hi, everybody. And I'm also joined today by Soren Rasmussen. Soren is the Media Relations Manager at Voices for Civil Justice, which is dedicated to helping the civil legal aid community with messaging, communications, and media. And he joins us today from Washington, D.C. Hi, Soren. Hi, Amanda. Hi, everybody. And uh, from the swamp, uh, Harley, and uh, hopefully not too uh, stressful Wednesday. Excellent. Yes, straight from the heart of the swamp. Um, glad you could be with us. Well, Kevin and Soren wrote our current article that's on the Clearinghouse. It's called Narrating Justice, Client-Centered Media Advocacy. It can be found on the Clearinghouse community, which is at povertylaw.org slash clearinghouse. And the article describes how civil legal aid programs, even those funded by the Legal Services Corporation, can engage in client-centered media advocacy. It's got tips and it's got a great case study from Arkansas. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Let's go ahead and get started and talk about client-centered media advocacy. Kevin, I'll start with you. What does that mean? What do you mean by that term, client-centered media advocacy? Well, sure. I mean, I think the client-centered portion is the most important. And in everything we do as legal aid attorneys, our, our focus should be on how do we add some meaningful value to clients' lives, right? So whether it's directly through some sort of legal advocacy, whether it's kind of in the informal counseling role um, that some of us take on when appropriate, or whether it's that idea of um, being able to translate client stories and experiences into something that's helpful to somebody else, right? Whether it's other clients, um, members of the wider public, the media, other legal aid advocates, whoever that might be, um, making sure that we are bringing value to clients' lives in all the ways possible, and media advocacy is one way that we can do that. Excellent. Well, Soren, why why would a legal aid program want to open itself and its clients up to public scrutiny? Um, isn't that kind of dangerous in today's media world? Well, I would argue it's too risky not to do it. I mean, you're already under scrutiny, both locally and nationally, and narratives and, and stories about your clients, about the problems they have every day about the issues that you're working on. Um, I mean, they're already being told. I mean, how many times have you seen a segment on television or read an article or an op-ed and kind of just either gone from being mildly frustrated to banging your fist against the wall just because it's either wrong or because it's not told in the way that you know to be true? Uh, I, I bet Kevin is smiling and I bet he can tell it as well. Well, it's because somebody else is telling, you know, your story and you're a side of the story and you're not. And, and so there's really no reason um, not to at least do, do it in some kind of way. I'm not saying go out there guns a blazing and, and you know, go Michael Avenatti style and want to be on, on every single story that you don't have expertise in. It's of course <laughs> important to be strategic and know which audience you're talking to and what it is you're trying to accomplish here. But it's, there are way more upsides to 
being in the media and telling your stories from your perspective than, than not. Well, I'll remind um, our viewers that we want to hear from you. So if you have questions about this, please feel free to submit those through the live chat. You can also email me if live chat isn't your thing. Um, you can email me at Amanda Moore, M-O-O-R-E, at povertylaw.org. And I'll be sure to see your question that way as well. So I'm thinking more of these concerns that people might be thinking of. Um, and your article takes a lot of those just head on and answers them. Um, one of those that I thought was pretty compelling is this question of whether it's exploitative to put a client in front of the media at a time that's you know probably one of the, the client's hardest times in life. So Kevin, I'll turn to you with that. Is it exploitative to engage in this kind of uh, work with the media? Well, it all depends, I think, on how you do it, what your approach is. Um, I mean, we always see here at Legal Aid of Arkansas, we try to see our clients as kind of partners in advocacy. Um, and that means honoring their wishes, um, centering them and their desires. And so there's a way to do this and do media strategy where it isn't at all exploitative. It's talking to folks, um, seeing whether they think their stories, whether they're comfortable um, sharing their stories, making sure that they know that whether or not they say yes, they're gonna get the same level of service, knowing that they can kind of pull their consent at any point and that you're um, going to honor that in any way, um, no matter how frustrating it might be or how much it might interrupt your own sort of strategy. So it doesn't have to be exploitative. And you definitely need to start off very early on, um, well before you actually want them to speak to the media or want them to do something, talking to them about this, seeing if they think that's a good idea, gauging their comfort levels being responsive to their concerns and so forth. Great. Um, Soren, our audience members, I imagine, have a probably a, a pretty wide range of experience in dealing with the media. So some are probably just starting out with this, thinking about it. Um, others have probably already had some experience. Let's focus on, on the newbies for a minute. So um, for those who are just starting out, what, what should they do? What would be the first steps you would recommend for someone who is starting to think about maybe engaging in this type of client-centered media advocacy? Yeah, I think it starts and it kind of builds up what Kevin just said. It starts by having, you know, your own infrastructure, your own um, guidelines, your own set of rules, especially as it applies to clients, you know, when you can pull the plug, what they are to expect, um, how there's a normal process to this, how, of course, that you will never let any, um, media effort uh try to come in the way of what they're ultimately trying to achieve here um so it starts with like that sort of infrastructure and that kind of has to go out to the entire organization as well but on an individual level you're talking about um you're tra talking about setting up a culture to actually succeed so do you have internal guidelines for media in general do you have a supportive leadership that is on board or how do you have to navigate that internally um do you have a process to capture good stories? Do you know how to tell them? Do you have tools um, to work with reporters like one pagers or two pagers just with, you know, just kind of a cheat sheet about how to, do, you know, typically do's and don'ts to start with? Um, do you have an internal media list that sort of overlaps with your organizational or your litigation objectives? Um, if you set that out from the beginning, at least, if you have that from the beginning, that's that's always a good start. And you kind of have to have that groundwork laid it's at least that's what we recommend that you have that groundwork laid until you start um you know jumping out and and suddenly finding yourself 
making mistakes that could easily have been avoided if you you know spent just an hour or two on the front end rather than then suddenly figuring out oh we yeah that's that's probably something we should have known from the beginning um it's it's kind of the same as with reporter's mindset i mean research and the same as imagine as you do um as you do cases you wouldn't dare to go to trial without knowing what the facts and what sort of uh, strategies or sort of questions the judge might ask what co the opposing counsel might say um so it's it's really all about research sorry so you mentioned a lot of um, documents that people might want to have in place when they're starting out. Um, I know if I were just starting out and I heard that list, I would think, I don't know how to create those. So are there are there resources people can go to to find templates or talk to someone um, who can give guidance on those kind of foundational documents that people need to have? Well, yeah, I, I certainly want to um, just shamelessly promote ourselves and what we do here at Voices, it, we do have some of these resources available um, to you. If not, we have created them along the way for local programs if they you know, ask us for it. We also have a discussion list where people um, from time to time ask uh, other people across the legal aid community whether they have seen certain problems around media communications and if they have you know, things like a client release form or uh, one pager on how to engage with reporters, how to be on air as opposed to um, as opposed to writing op-eds, as opposed to talking to a reporter on the phone. Um, so those resources certainly exist. And if nothing else, I mean, Google is always your friend. And if you do have somebody who works in communications or journalism in your family or in your um, professional circle, just ask them. There is, of course, a somewhat of a different approach from reporter to reporter and from local media market to local media market. Um, so anytime you can kind of feed off of other people's knowledge too. That's that's something that tends to be forgotten in the age of Google, but is as important as, as ever, really. Great. And so I'll note that in the follow-up email that we send out, um, we'll be sure to include Soren's contact information so you can get in touch with him and the, the staff at Voices for Civil Justice um, to get some of those uh, samples. We've had a question come in from Sarah in New Hampshire. Sarah, I'm going to hold your question for just a minute because I think what I'm going to talk to Kevin about next um, might lead us into your question. So thank you, Soren, for telling us about sort of the, the entry level. Kevin, you <clears throat> and Legal Aid of Arkansas have done quite a bit of work um, with the media, with your clients. I want to hear a little bit about that. You go into, uh, you tell a great case story in the article, so I encourage everyone to read that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, your experience with the case that you talked about um, in the article and what you've, some of the tips that you've learned as you've kind of gotten more experience working with clients and working with the media. Sure. And I should note that we started off pretty much at beginner level. I mean, Legal Aid of Arkansas certainly had been in the press plenty of times before, usually through press releases or sometimes um, occasional one-off stories for some great victory we had or some really pressing issue that, that we were working with folks on. Um, but in terms of anything sort of intentional, bigger picture with multiple episodes in it, um, we had not strategized at all there. And Soren and Voices were a huge help. Um, in terms of this particular issue, it's a Medicaid issue. Um, basically, um, Medicaid will pay for um, a caregiver to come into somebody's home and provide a certain amount of what's called attendant care, help with activities of daily living, bathing, eating, cooking, you know, these kinds of activities. For a long time, the state had used uh, registered nurses to assess somebody and decide how many hours of care that they were going to receive up to a maximum of eight hours per day. 
what happened starting in January of 2016, the state switched to an algorithm that um, would determine the number of hours that somebody would receive. And there was no deviating from what the algorithm said. And really the best case scenario under the algorithm was for people to get five and a half hours a day of care. And so for individuals with cerebral palsy, quadriplegia, multiple sclerosis, um, or just other various chronic ailments, um, that was a drastic cut, anywhere between 20 and 50% um, in the case of most of our clients. And not only was it a cut, it was a cut that left people lying in their own waste, left people without food, left people with no community contact, shut in, all these other really horrifying um, conditions and undignified conditions. So that's kind of where we started. And we knew the first way the story occurred to us was as benefit cuts to, you know, a really vulnerable population. We try to avoid the discourse about the most needy and all that stuff um, for, for various problems we can talk about later. Um, but we saw it as, hey, this is benefits cuts for a, a vulnerable population um, with some interesting black box angle about the algorithm. Um, but what we saw is as coverage on it intensified and as word of it spread, the algorithm itself kind of became the story, right? Is what's is it appropriate for a government agency to use an algorithm to the exclusion of human judgment in determining these vital home care benefits? And then there was all of this stuff about the secrecy of the algorithm. And then once we figured out how the algorithm worked, how absurd the algorithm is, um, all these other things that kind of came and developed. And so that went hand in hand with litigation. Um, and really media became a way for us to augment our advocacy capabilities through litigation by um, helping spread the word so that folks who were affected would come to us um, by putting the word out there about what the algorithm was doing and helping other people ask questions um, on their own and then also giving this whole body of information out to the public so that our clients or other affected people could then have information that they could act on on their own independently of us and become kind of self-advocates in a way that was really um, incredible to see and is still kind of ongoing. Well, let me ask Sarah's question now. So <clears throat> Sarah says that uh, their policy is generally to hold off on proactive media work until a case is completed. Any advice for evaluating when, whether, or how to do media advocacy during a case? So Kevin, what did you all do? Yeah, this is something that uh, is really controversial, I think, with lawyers generally, and in particular, I guess, in legal aid. Most of the time, the fears I hear are that clients are going to say something wrong. Um, and I just haven't found that to be a really valid concern when there's enough prep and when you have um, a sufficient number of clients. Um, it just it seems all right, even if it's the clients in the litigation that are saying something, as long as they've been prepped all right. I think it's okay. There's some risk, right, because of what could come out in a deposition or contradictory testimony. Um, but if you have clients who have the same issue as whatever you're litigating on, and they're not part of the litigation, um, and media makes sense in terms of getting other clients, helping inform the public about um, whatever's going on, or creating somehow indirectly favorable conditions for a, a good outcome, then I don't see any reason not to use um, media. But again, you have to have that strategic purpose in mind at the beginning. We're never out just hunting media for the limelight, right? We, we want it for something in particular. Yeah, I think if I can jump in here too uh, on that is that there are certainly 
way you know just as a as a matter of media it's it's it becomes harder you know to to get in the media if a case is not ongoing if it's already closed so that's one smaller consideration but there are certain ways of doing media that are more um because certainly can alleviate and talk to some of those those concerns if you know that there's a person you could absolutely not see going on television or on on live radio have them have them sit down with a reporter in a place where they're comfortable with you present or have them write something like an essay or an op-ed and, and help edit it that process it's um just making sure that 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 their story is told in a way that that maximizes their own control of that um that's another consideration to always think of and i i do think too at least from what we're hearing is that clients themselves will find that or people just in general will find that incredibly powerful and incredibly empowering once they get the chance to do that uh if you're really afraid too of a television interview what kevin i know that kevin legal aid of arkansas did as well you do it on your own um, create a couple of videos and edit out all the stuff that's not supposed to be there um pitch that into um or spread that on your own channels um and maybe even pitch it into certain local television stations or their social media um, managers. Um, that might be something that's that's uh, an alternative way to get in the media, but um, a way that's that, that certainly can um, have great success. In some in some local papers, they will have you know thirty thousand subscribers, or they will have uh, maybe. A rating of you know a hundred thousand people watching, but their social media feed will have hundreds of thousand views over the course of a couple of months. So it's maybe even more valuable to you to use that specific platform. The added benefit that you get to control the narrative in a, in a much more, um, a much more beneficial way. Um, we had a question posted about whether this will be recorded. Um, it is being recorded and will be available later. Everyone who registered will get um, an email with a link to the recording and a link to Soren and Kevin's article. Um, <clears throat> I'll remind our viewers that you can submit your questions to Kevin and Soren either through the live chat on YouTube or you can email me at Amanda Moore, M O O R E, at povertylaw.org. <clears throat> um, Kevin, one of the things that you stress in your article is that organizations that receive funding from the Legal Services Corporation should not shy away from this type of media work. How can you be so confident about that? <laughs> uh, we've tried it. And so far, Mark Friedman, who's on the, the, on the webcast with us here, has not yet launched an investigation. So we're safe right now. Um, check back next week. Um, no, I mean, the thing here is you've got to be really disciplined. Okay. And this is kind of part of building in that culture that Soren was talking about earlier is it's not, it's something that you can definitely do and you should do, right? You just want to make sure that you're careful when you do it, especially when the risks are higher if you, if you receive LSE funds. So you've got to master the LSE regulations. And really, you're probably only going to have a couple people in your organization that have done that or want to do that. Um, and so that means referring to the regulations all the time. That means referring to the advisory opinion letters. We tried to lay some of them out in our article um, to get a good sense of what is and isn't possible. I will say this, if you analyze the regulations, you notice that they are not intent-based. And this is actually very liberating in a way, is it's not what you're intending to do as a program, it's what you're actually doing, 
right? And so there's kind of that bright line test um, that you can go up to and know that as long as you're not crossing that um, with a with a prohibited action, you'll be okay. So master the LSC regulations. Um, if there is something questionable, make sure you're justifying it internally and playing back and forth the risks beyond just yourself and certainly with the person who's um, probably the executive director who's got to ultimately make the call. Um, see if there's sometimes, if you think it's a risky strategy, see if there's a less risky strategy that's going to do the accomplish more or less the same thing. And, um, you know, if needed, you can contact NLADA for advice about it. And then you can always contact LSC. Um, for, for advice about it too. So I think there's a lot in there um, that allows the freedom to do things. Clear things you can't say, right? And um, you need to learn what those are. If there's a policy in place, like if there is, you know, rule, rule X or statute Y that's actively under consideration now, you need to be really careful. If there's something else that's just vaguer, more general, um, there ends up being more freedom to maneuver there. So. I don't know. I, it's hard to opine without a specific factual situation in front of me, but there is a ton of wiggle room, and we've been able to do it with uh, or take advantage of that wiggle room with a lot of um, dedicated study of what's permissible. And I'll, I'll note that um, in Kevin and Soren's article, they do cite to a lot of the regs. Um, if you need a refresher on where they are, what they are, what they say, um, those are cited in their article. <clears throat> Soren, different organizations have wildly different capacities for doing this type of work. What should advocates do if their organizations um, don't have dedicated staff for media work? And this is going to fall on the advocates themselves. Do you have tips for how they should handle that? Uh, yeah, certainly. And let me let me start by saying all the work on the LSC regulations are, of course, uh, the wonderful work of Kevin. I don't know anything about it. Also, he should certainly bear the responsibility if something goes wrong there. Uh, it is so the it's 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 goes back to what he started is is having a culture of um, of media individually at least if not through the organization. There are a couple of steps where you know you will be hamstrung if not um, um, have a bigger burden to have if you don't have somebody who's dedicated to communications or media or if you don't have an executive director who. You know, finds the value to it, um, but if you you know want to do something, there's no reason why you can't do it on your own or take initiative to do it. And and again, it starts with a clear media policy or just having sort of a understanding and agreement from the start in the organizations that you know if push comes to shove, you can go back and and kind of cite to say, yeah, I know that we ended up in this place where we're taking a bit of a you know a bit of heat here, but we agreed to this in the beginning, so let's stay the course. Um, it's just creating small processes of, you know, how do you share knowledge? How do you share resources across the organization? You know, we, we've had a couple of organizations where, you know, I asked one attorney, do you have, you know, who do you have of relationships with reporters? And that attorney then said, well, I'm not sure we really do have that within the organization where, you know, he came back to me a couple of days later. Oh, of course. Yeah. Our, you know, X, Y, and Z attorney knows, you know, basically half of the staff on, on various local uh, media outlets. So there's a lot of resources already there um, um, that is available. And again, to, to shamelessly plug what we're doing here, we're, you know, we're a free service that's put in the world to 
combat that exact situations where if you don't have that dedicated staff but still want to engage with the media um that's sort of what we're supposed to do on on your behalf uh and not only you know with you know our interest is only is, is your interest and what you're interested in so you're not getting a pr company who you know also has a secondary concern about whether you know their name is getting out there potentially finding new clients or making sure to land the most prominent outlet um, that may not necessarily overlap with what you're trying to achieve or who you're trying to reach um, so it's 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 you can get you can go a long way with with um with doing some legwork internally before you even start reaching out externally um, <clears throat> I'll note that our time is drawing close to a close. So if viewers have questions, please go ahead and send those now. You can use the live chat on YouTube um, or email me, Amanda Moore, M-O-O-R-E, at povertylaw.org. <clears throat> um, one of the things that you all mentioned that was in your comments was this idea that um, because of social media, advocates aren't really tied to having a, a middle person that their message has to go through, um, which I think may give more leeway to make sure that, you know, as Kevin pointed out, you are strategic. Um, the client is at the center of this. Uh, Kevin, the example that you gave um, of what you all did in Arkansas, you really took advantage of this, of being able to control the message yourself. Can you talk about, uh, give some of the examples of, of what you did, some of the channels that you used to put those client stories into the world? Sure. And just for context, the reason we invested this level of time, effort, everything else is because this was an issue of huge concern for our client community. It wasn't just a couple of folks. We went from basically having zero cases of this type to in the last, what, 24 months, 200 or so, um, probably 100 of which came in around the time we started considering um, being more strategic about media. So this was a big investment because it mattered to our clients. So what we did is we actually uh, hired um, professional quality video production for a very modest sum um, to make videos of some of our clients whose situations reflected a lot of the really pressing issues um, with the algorithm reductions, algorithm cuts. And so we talked about, we talked with our various clients about who would be comfortable. We thought about this different characteristics that would hopefully be universal. Um, and then we actually produced the videos. Uh, it was a couple days of my time and the video project, uh, excuse me, the video producer's time um, to do all the filming and the interviewing and all the setup. And then it was a lot of time editing um, to get all this amazing material, right? Somebody's incredible life story down to something that's three or four minutes, made those videos, put them online on Facebook, boosted them, um, again, very modest sums and got amazing results. So one of our videos, I think, got, I think it was close to 20,000 views. Another got 10,000 views. Another got 6,000 views. Um, and in Arkansas, you know, we're a pretty small state. Um, so that was great. And it was a, a way for clients to be able to speak for themselves and speak for um, others who are in similar situations. And that also had the effect of giving other people affected or interested in the issue something that they could share it gave reporters something that they could reference um, and see that this would be a compelling story and that these are um, clients who, who are good at telling their story and all sorts of other good things that came from that. And so our executive director, Lee Richardson, really took kind of a, 
a very proactive approach to that and was willing to invest, um, you know, enough money to get it done, but it wasn't so much that it would raise any real uh, red flags. Well, thank you. And we had a question come in from Diana that ties to this. She says, um, <clears throat> given the decline in newspaper readership and traditional media, what are the best media sources to get the bang for your buck um, as far as getting the client sources out? And I wonder if what you're describing here may be just that. Yeah, and Soren has always been very good about coaching me to think of the audience, right? Who are you trying to reach? And, and then from there, focus on where you're going to spend your money. So if your goal is to reach clients, how can you reach them? And, you know, one way is those clients who are on social media. But then another way is for those clients who aren't so on social media or aren't online as much is getting the people who, who talk with them. Um, so that's another reason to use this in a way that maybe going out and knocking on doors or doing outreach sessions or other things could be a lot less efficient in terms of getting to the maximum number of people. And then if you're interested in talking more broadly to the public about an issue, then media makes, traditional media makes a lot of sense and is pretty low cost apart from the time of whoever is um, working with the reporter and working with the story. Um, <clears throat> Diana commented, exactly. So. Thanks for answering her question. Um, and I will wrap up um, with a comment that we received uh, from Jim in Michigan. Um, and basically he's going back to one of my initial questions about whether this is exploitative and basically says that as long as there's due care and telling a client's story within the confines of LSC guidelines, can't see how whatever happens can be any more exploitative than what a client is already contending with. Um, that that's the real exploitation is the injustice. And whatever exploitation, you know, with if someone construes it in a strange way or manipulates it, um, hopefully that's minimum. But if it leads to positive change that affects many others, then could this be seen as a win-win? Yeah, and I mean, that's the amazing thing about all this is like our clients found solidarity in the storytelling um, and started seeing themselves as advocates in a way that I don't think they would have seen themselves when they first came to us, right? When they first came to us, it was a legal issue that needed help, they needed help with. And by the time, uh, they haven't left us, right? We're still we're still fighting this fight. But um, now I think a lot of folks would, would see themselves as advocates and standing up for not only themselves, but for all the other people who haven't come to us or who can't speak as well, or who, for whatever reason, haven't participated. And that's a powerful transformation. And there's no way that that would have happened without kind of the intentional media strategy that we used there. So we weren't just the do-gooder helping the person who needs the help, right? We were actually trying to fulfill that that ideal of being partners in advocacy and hope, helping um, people um, be able to advocate for themselves in ways that we couldn't advocate for them. Thank you. Well, our time has drawn to a close. I want to thank everyone for tuning in and thank you, Kevin and Soren, for being with us today. Um, it was a very interesting conversation. I'll remind everyone that for more on this, um, you will get a follow-up email that has the recording. Um, it will also have contact information for Kevin and Soren. And I'll remind you, you can also read their article, which has a lot more on this. It's called Narrating Justice, Client-Centered Media Advocacy. And it's at povertylaw.org slash clearinghouse. Um, if you enjoyed today's program, please join our mailing list. You'll be notified of future programs and publications. You can join at connect.povertylaw.org slash 
Clearinghouse. And I'll remind you that the Advocacy Exchange is also available as a podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. I would also like to invite all of you to join us for next month's Advocacy Exchange. We'll talk about an extremely creative idea for fighting wage theft using the automatic location tracker on a worker's cell phone. My guests will be Michael Hollander and Nate Vogel of Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. That conversation will take place on Friday, September 7th, same time as today, 1 o'clock Eastern, 10 o'clock Pacific. And the link to register for that will be in that follow-up email that you'll receive in the next couple of days. And we hope that you will join us next month. And until then, remember that you're not alone out there. Thank you.